this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast i am your host g sampad after almost a decade the labor party is back in power in australia in the federal elections on may 21st the ruling liberal national coalition led by scott morrison considered defeat and the labor party's anthony albanese became the new prime minister so what does the return of labor mean for australian domestic politics and what changes if any can we expect in australian foreign policy we explore these questions and more in this episode of in focus and our guest today is professor amitabh mattu from the school of international studies at jnu uh, professor mattu thank you so much for joining us it's a great honor sampur Professor Mattu, to start with, uh, I have a uh, sort of a strange question. The new Prime Minister was sworn in even before the final tally of seat shares in the Parliament became known. It seemed to be as if you know it was done in a hurry. Is this normal, or was an exception made so that Australia can send its new Prime Minister to the Quad Summit in Japan? It's not normal. An exception was indeed ma- made, but it has to do with obviously Australia's. a sense of importance that it gives to its alliance relationships and its partnerships with the united states particularly and also japan and india secondly also remember that australia is not a republic it's still a constitutional monarchy and a democracy a robust democracy but you still have the governor general as a representative of the sovereign of the queen now he obviously made a determination that anthony albanese can be sworn in because the likelihood of him not getting a majority or a near majority was very very slim finally scott morrison also conceded the election under these circumstances the fact of the importance of the quad scott morrison's conceding the election and the governor general actually making a determination that anthony albanese was most likely to be the next prime minister or and scrape through with a majority or with a be heading a minority government that he sore him in it's not regular pattern but this democracy like australia it allows you the flexibility to make decisions like this right so do we have the final tally yet or is still counting and i mean i understand postal votes etc are taking more time are they are still being counted and we don't know that final tally yet i think about four seats when i saw the results last were still up for grabs and labor was one shot of majority be good if labor has a majority at least for the labor party because then it will mean a certain stability in terms of the party and the government but on the other hand you have these group of 10 independents who have fought almost on single issue or a couple of issues who will then be punching much about their weight especially if it is a minority government right So coming back to the actual election and the campaign which we saw what in your assessment were the main issues for the voters I mean was were they disenchanted with the Morrison regime which led to this outcome or was it more a mandate in favor of labor it was more disenchantment with the Morrison government there was an anti incumbency in terms of the liberal regime there have been 9 years of the liberals winning which is not been the pattern in recently in australia you've had change of governments have after every 3 years then 
there was disenchantment with the personality of Scott Morrison, including his views on women, uh, including the fact that he did not react with the same ferocity as he should have when there were reports of an assault on a woman from within the parliament, within the government, and also that he left for a holiday at a time of deep crisis during COVID. And Scott Morrison, you know, has in the past presided over one of the most controversial tourism campaigns when he was headed to Tourism Australia called Where the Bloody Hell Are You, which was a way of trying to attract tourists, but really attracted all the controversies possible. So I think disenchantment with the liberals, disenchantment with the personality of Scott Morrison, rather than great enthusiasm with either Anthony Albanese or the Labour Party is what has really got the Labour Party the government today. Uh, you mentioned this tourism campaign whose motto was, where the bloody hell are you? Mean, what, what exactly was the problem with it? Wasn't it something which reflected the Australian attitude or something like that? Too much of Australian attitude and ultimately a kind of stereotyping of a kind of male bogan, as they call it, Australian view of the world. And finally, you had this bikini-clad model emerging from the oceans. Just, I think, the whole campaign didn't gel. The idea was, as you, Sampath, pointed out, that this will reflect the kind of Australian attitude towards life, sea, sunshine, and general attitude of not getting a dam and that kind of matey view. But it created a huge controversy. I mean, I think Scott Morrison would have been better off without that campaign. Uh, but his track record in terms of attitude towards women was dismal in the last few months when he was Prime Minister. Right. And we've heard so much about Australia's very stringent lockdown uh, during the pandemic. And we, we had this whole episode involving uh, Novak Djokovic uh, being deported. So how big a factor in the elections was the government's handling of COVID and the lockdown as a result of which when we have read reports that many Australian citizens themselves couldn't meet their family members for over one and a half years and so on? You know, the, the record there is mixed. I must say that the poll figures fluctuated during the various stages of the pandemic, whether it was the Alpha wave or the Delta wave or the Omicron wave. And sometimes it seemed that Morrison had got it right because the number of Australian fatalities was much less than in the rest of the Western world and that the lockdown was working. And more importantly, he had actually created a national cabinet which met once a week where the premiers of all the states, uh, seven states, used to meet and take decisions collectively. And there was a great deal of autonomy and agency left to the states also to determine how the lockdown should be implemented. That initially seemed to have worked well. But then the Omicron wave, where there was a sudden spike in cases, in fatalities, I think that meant that his approval ratings went through. And secondly, of course, the point that you made, that Australians were less stranded. And that this was well known. There were Australians who couldn't meet their parents or family members for 24 months. There were no planes, there were severe there were no flights, there were, no, there were restrictions on the number of people who would be allowed entry. And then uh, you had to spend 10 days in quarantine. I spent 10 days in quarantine trying to see my family in Melbourne, which was under conditions 
uh, quite uh, duress. You couldn't leave the room. You couldn't exercise. You were just given a packet of food outside your room. So it, those were not the most desirable conditions. So that did have an impact. But as I said, over the past two years, the COVID approved during the COVID approval ratings of Morrison uh, during the pandemic have actually gone up and down. So pandemic is not the single reason why he's lost out. Okay. And you mentioned about uh, those 10 independents earlier. And uh, there's also been a lot of buzz about this steel independence phenomenon, which you also referred to in one of your columns recently. Uh, could you talk a little bit about who these steel independents are? How did they come about? I mean, are they, are they now uh, going to play a big role in shaping the agenda of uh, national political debates in Australia? Absolutely. I think the steel independents are probably the most important thing that have happened in Australian politics for a long time. I mean, there was the rise of the Greens, but this is much stronger, more robust, because they're actually winning in blue-chip liberal seats. Now, Teal, Sampath, is a duck, and it's this, is a, the color Teal from that duck is a bluish-green. So it's a variety of the liberal blue, but not quite there. So they were actually protesting against liberal policies. These are people essentially uh, conservative in nature, who might have voted liberal in the past elections, uh, but were really surprised and shocked by the fact that the Liberal Party was not acting with, 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 with its greater alacrity on climate change, and that even the Labour wasn't acting. And they felt that these, both these parties were um, subject to the pressures of the coal lobby. So the single issue which was driving them was climate change, renewable sources of energy. And then, of course, two other issues were added on as the Morrison government demonstrated its incompetence, women's safety and integrity. As issues of corruption became more public, as issues of women's safety became more public, they added these two issues. But they were driven essentially by the urgency to do something on climate change. And especially since Australia, in terms of the track record, in terms of emissions, is one of the poorest track records in the world. Right. So you made an interesting point that the Teal candidates had uh, conservative origins, but they are really quite for the worried, concerned about climate change issues. Now, that's a bit strange, isn't it? Traditionally, we've seen conservative groups are not uh, very much on the climate change bandwagon. They have tended to be climate skeptics. They've tended to align uh, with the fossil fuel lobbies. So how has this uh, come about? You have conservative politicians, but they are are really, really taking up the climate change issue in Australia. You see, it's interesting that the Australian elite, there's a section of the Australian elite which just likes the lifestyle that Australia offers, which is a sense of space, great deal of sense of uh, the biodiversity, a certain predictability about climates. But in the last few years, they've witnessed forest fires, bushfires, they witnessed flood, floods when in areas which were never flooded before. A whole lifestyle is being threatened. And the elite feel this the most because they have farms, they have a lifestyle which used to support this kind of sense of space, as I said, and the Aussie way of living. Now, I'll give you an example of how strong the sentiment is. There's a constituency in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, which is an upmarket constituency 
which has always been won by the liberals ever since that constituency was created. The first liberal MP was the longest standing prime minister of Australia, Robert Menzies. And ever since that time, they've only elected liberals. The present incumbent was Josh Frydenberg. He's the treasurer, the second most important person in the cabinet. And he was seen as potentially replacing Morrison in case the Liberals won, given that Morrison's approval ratings were plummeting. Josh was someone who's as blue-chip liberal. Kuyong, the constituency is as blue-chip liberal as you can think of. Josh, in fact, went to Oxford as well to do an MPhil in international relations and as a star of the Liberal Party. Six months ago, there was suddenly the emergence of this doctor, pediatric surgeon, from nowhere, Dr. Monique Ryan, and she suddenly took on Josh Frydenberg. She had an electrifying campaign with hundreds of volunteers joining her. In fact, my family lives there. So I, whenever you took a walk, you saw only Ryan's posters, not Josh's posters. And you could meet Ryan in every coffee shop over the weekend. So she ran this electrifying campaign and there was a swing of almost 10% against Josh Frydenberg and he lost his constituency. So this was an upmarket constituency, primarily of liberal voters, driven by fears of climate change and what it would do to their lifestyle. Right. It's very interesting that the elites, how they perceive uh, climate change. And, 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 and it's, it's also interesting that they seem to sort of uh, get into it from a direct threat to something they cherish, which is their lifestyle. And we'll have to wait and see how this translates in other countries as well. Coming back to the Prime Minister, the new Prime Minister, we know that Albanese is from a working class background and he had a childhood in council housing. Do you think his politics will be more sympathetic to traditional left-wing ideas such as greater state spending on welfare, a softer line on immigration and so on? See, Albanese is an interesting person. If you, he's, His mother was an Irish Catholic. He's, of course, a non-practicing Catholic. Who sh she encountered her, his Italian father over a ship coming into Australia. And Albanese thought that his father was dead. Um, mother said, that's what, the, that's what her mother told him. Because it was just a short affair that the mother had with this Italian gentleman. It was only at the age of 40 he discovers that his father is still alive. And goes and meets him and they have a reconciliation of sorts. But he's lived a life of deprivation, not privilege. His mother was disabled severely because of rheumatoid arthritis. He's lived in Sydney council housing. And really, a, as you said, a working class background and a worldview, uh, which was national and international, part of the kind of international uh, working class movement and the solidarities that that built. So he campaigned for the Australian African National Congress and the dismantling of apartheid. He cam campaigned for nuclear disarmament. In many ways, the great legacy of Gough Whitlam, who actually created the welfare system in Australia, as you know it today. I mean, the liberals say oh, it's a great idea, but Whitlam didn't know how to pay for it. We had to invent ways to pay for it. But Gough Whitlam created Australia as it exists today. So Albanese consciously or otherwise, has potentially an ideological affiliation with Whitlam. Whitlam, I mean, Albanese belongs to the left wing of the Labour Party. But having worked against these hurdles, having become Deputy Prime Minister and now Prime Minister against all odds, he's pragmatic. 
pragmatism is now part of his psyche it's part of his body and soul he's someone who wants to find the middle ground so he wants to negotiate drive a consensus his responses are always studied rather than immediately cerebral or brilliant so he brings you know a workman like quiet attitude not full of gregarious charisma but a kind of feeling of comfort that you can be rest assured that this person will not let you down on the question of welfare these are mantras of the labor party obviously i don't see whether it's in terms of medicare or whether it's in terms of pensions that there will be any cuts however he inherits a huge deficit from the liberal party which really during the pandemic decided to spend 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 when there was productivity is low so unless there's an investment in manufacturing and productivity it's going to be difficult for him to balance the budget in the near future right so you mentioned that he is very pragmatic in the in the context of his left wing ideological affiliations so how would you how do you see this pragmatism translating into his political priorities which areas do you think his policies would be different from that of the morrison regime you know first of all i think there will be a greater transparency and straightforwardness i think on climate change there will be pressure to have targets on emissions which are realistic and yet uh, reflect the concerns that australians have about climate change morrison classically in one picture had a bit took to parliament a little piece of coal with him uh, just to suggest that he is passionate about coal because the coal lobby is one of the most important funders of the liberal party in contrast i think albanese will have to demonstrate that he is going to act on climate change simultaneously i think it's important for him to demonstrate that they are going to be prudent about the budget which means you don't have the luxury of spending spending and spending you'll have to now either improve productivity perhaps not raise taxes immediately uh, but not be able to expand on uh, welfare programs uh, so the economy is clearly an area climate change is another area on the social sector on women's rights and what's happened in parliament i think he has to act that there has to be greater transparency and greater action whenever a woman feels concerned about that space so gender equity and finally i think in terms of integrity he'll have to act on these three four issues which the teals have raised if the teals are in government or it teals or the government is dependent on the teal support then he, he'll be forced to act but in some ways even if that doesn't happen and labor gets a majority on its own it would be wise for him to grab these issues and make them his own appropriate that agenda because these are important issues for middle australia right now you mentioned uh, something about coal lobby uh, being close to the previous regime and how that might change now where uh, albanese has climate change uh, firmly at the center of his priorities and even if he doesn't want to he might be forced to now coming to india we've had good relations with the morrison government so what can india and indian interests not just government but also business interests expect from the new government and 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 i'm here talking not only about regional issues such as quad and china but also business interests where i think we've read reports about adani group having some interests in coal mining in australia and they've also had some kind of resistance from the local populations how do you see these issues playing out especially those issues which have an india connect 
with the new regime you see there is the morrison government was bullish on india and towards the last they invested a huge amount in wanting to build a center new center on india on creating scholarships on empowering the diaspora and of course signing on the interim free trade agreement so that legacy is something which albanese will probably protect especially in terms of the free trade agreement so indian manufacturers producers can look forward to having greater access to the australian market so that 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 will only that should show greater promise even during the albanese government what is concerning will be the issue of coal because you know adani group is an important player in bilateral relations also bilateral economic relations also in terms of his importance as probably one the second of india's biggest business group and yet there is deep deep concern within the labor party section of the labor party and now the labor party under pressure from the teals which may not be able to jeopardize which may not jeopardize the coal mining project but there will be new questions i think uh, it will be important for the arani group to reflect on strategies to mitigate concerns about emissions because this is not this is not an easy time to be uh, in in the business of coal in australia right that's a very important uh, i think issue which may come up in the in the following months and uh, would you like to add something on the quad and china aspect with regard to albanese's approach i think despite people feeling that albanese government is going to be softer on china or that the foreign minister might be much more empathetic to china i think albanese and penny wong by going for the quad summit have also demonstrated that they are as concerned as the morrison government about china's not just china's rise but china's belligerence particularly towards australia they're also concerned about the fact that many of the pacific islands which were within kind of australia's zone of influence beginning with the solomon islands are now under pressure from china to sign up to security arrangements or other deals clearly this is playing very poorly into the domestic opinion in australia but australia's concerns about china are only going to increase it's possible that there might be some scope for negotiation and that albanese and wong may try and see if there is a way in which the tensions do not escalate between beijing and canberra but i suspect of this robust engagement with the quad the relationship which has been now embedded in aukus is going to sustain itself and become even stronger because there is no reason for us to believe that the chinese will suddenly try and accommodate australian interests right so at least on on the foreign policy front uh, it does look from what you're saying that there will be continuity with the morrison government's legacy uh, both with regard to quad and china and also in terms of protecting bilateral interests between india and australia and of course there will be some changes positively perhaps on climate change and integrity with the new regime and i think it will be interesting to see how albanese negotiates the various challenges in the rest of his term thank you so much professor matut it was very interesting listening to your comments pleasure talking to you thank you sampath in focus will be back soon 
with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.